that time again for the podcast nobody listens to except like 12 people. Uh, it's Too Lazy to Write with me, your host, John Baker, or as I go by on Twitter, at the real John Baker. And that's where you can find me some days. Other days you can just find me sitting in my house. Today's a big day at the house because we're getting a new door. So while they're installing the new door, I'm uh, doing this. Um, and what have I got for you today? It's a good one. I actually really, really enjoyed this. Um, uh, growing up in Ottawa in the 80s, um, a lot of concerts came to town. A lot of big shows, a lot of little shows, a lot of club shows, a lot of comedy shows, show, 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 shows. And uh, I was at many of them thanks to the generosity of my uh, parents. And um, for a while, Ottawa was... Um, Kind of a music uh, wasteland, I think, my opinion, not everybody's. Um, but then we started getting shows, and a lot of that can be credited to the man I interviewed today. His name is Harold Levin. Uh, he, uh, <clears throat> truth be told, I know his daughters, and um, and I've been trying to get Harold on for a while. He's a great guy. He is retired now, um, still active, though, in the... Uh, I guess, promotions business, uh, which we talk about. We talk about a whole bunch of things. We talk about, um, you know, how, how he kind of fell into this, um, the highs, the lows, mostly the highs. I don't think we really touch on any lows and a bunch of other stuff. And um, we talk about some of his artwork uh, that he's purchased, which I remembered from a visit to his office many, many years ago. Anyway, it's, uh, as usual... Um, there was technical difficulties. Hey, hey, it's par for the course with this thing. And I'm hoping to get a new computer because this is just driving me bonkers. And um, I hope you enjoy it. It's me. It's Harold Levin. And it was done just yesterday uh, on Wednesday. And today's Thursday. Uh, so you're getting it, uh, you know, all over the place this podcast is. But I'm hoping uh, I got a few other guests lined up. And I'm hoping I get to them. But I'll talk about that when I leave, when I say goodbye. So enjoy it. Listen to it and uh, love it. It's a really great chat I had with him. So hope you like it. You look younger than me. What's with the uh, gray in your beard? Yeah, I don't know what happened there. I got old. Is that what happened? That's yeah. We well, I'm sorry. I'm just there. We go. Okay. Yeah, I want you to see me. I can see you. So um, yeah, we all got old. Well, I know I did for sure. <laughs> but you've been keeping busy. Um, unfortunately, yes, life is always busy. Okay, well, that's good. Are you still in, I know Shauna is involved heavily in, uh, in the arts and promotions. Are, right. Are you still at all? Uh, I appear to be. Last, uh, November I took Russell Peters across the country. That's, I remember Shauna telling me about that. How was that? Fabulous. So it's like coast to coast? Yes. And um, you've known him for a while, though, right? You're you're more than just a promoter with him. Uh, yes. I be, well, he, he used to come to Yuck Yucks all the time. And, of course, Yuck Yucks, up until six or seven years ago, was mine. Yeah. So I got to know him then. And I've been working with him 12, 13 years as his Canadian promoter. So you, like, I, I want to go back. I want to start at the very beginning. Um, how did you... Were you, were you part of like a musical family or like, uh, what was your interest in music for, or, or promotion? 
Well, it was never really music or promotion. It was always, in general, business. Okay. And um, what had happened was, I got a, um, a business. I got a certificate in in business. I started working for the government. That lasted six months. Mm-hmm. Before that, I think I once I graduated, I worked uh, running garden centers for about a year. Then the government for six months, and then my my cousin Harvey Glatt, who owned the Treble Clef, which was, I think, one record store at that point, and also had a club called Le Hibou, sure, which was a folk, mostly folk, uh, folk music. Um, broached me, and he needed somebody with a little bit of business acumen to uh, work with him. His his basic forte was I think realizing what this what the, the city needed and or wanted when it came to music mm-hmm. so I joined joined him and uh, ultimately as as a retail grew I me- I immediately kind of got very heavily involved in the the um, concert area and became not only the kind of the numbers man or the point man for the people we got involved with, which was uh, my partners for 25 years, Michael Cole in Toronto and Donald Tarleton in Montreal, which which was Donald K. Donald, and Michael Cole was Concert Productions International. Michael went on to become the worldwide promoter for the Rolling Stones, and of course his his... His fame is now uh, very much um, written up on Google. He wanted to be the big man, and he became the big man. And um, in 1982, I took over what was uh, Bass Clef Entertainments. I bought my cousin Harvey out, and I proceeded to uh, run and create a business a little bit bigger than it had been more as a hobby, but was growing uh, What in the 70s when I first got involved. So you, you kind of, like, could you say you sort of fell into this? 100%. 100% fell into it. 100%. It became, um, uh, for sure, we're all a product of sometimes who we know mm-hmm. or the experiences that we meet along the way. Essentially, I was. And still perceive myself to be a business person. I was very fortunate to be able to get myself involved in a business that I happen to love. It it's it's not. It wasn't my knowledge of the music industry per se. It was always my um, abilities. I think as a kind of I guess a number cruncher in that. You know, when you build a building and you sell condo units in the building, at the end of the day, you have had to do your homework to make sure that all of the ducks are in order. And at the end of the day, hopefully there's a little bit left for the developer. In my case, it was the same thing. Um, I got a, I was got fairly acclimatized to what it took to, to put on a small concert, a big concert, an outdoor concert. Per se, and again, at the end of the day, everything had to be done right, so so that you didn't have to worry. If I mean, obviously, 
if you're doing an outdoor show and it it was pouring rain, mm-hmm. your day of sale is going to kill you. Mm-hmm. You're not going to make the money, but if you're smart enough to get to the point of the day of sale, at least maybe you're not going to lose that much money. So anyway, it was for me, it was always um, being able to do what I knew best, and that was kind of being not the guy that was going out to dinner with or wanting to go out to dinner or wanting to spend time backstage. It was a guy that wanted to do it right. All I wanted to overlook and oversee it all, but I wanted to do it right. And I had uh, I was fortunate enough to have wonderful people around me to help me do what I wanted to do. So you don't have any wild party stories that you would want to share? Um, <laughs> I know of many, but do I want to share them? No. No, because everybody has either heard a variation on a theme, and the only thing I can say is, unfortunately, most of them are true. Oh, okay. I want to ask you, I was in your office a long time ago, and you had a, po- or a, a print or a painting on the wall, and I'm, I'm thinking it was signed by Dizzy Gillespie. Is that right? Amazing memory. Pretty good, yeah. huh? So yeah. is there a story behind that? Uh, yes. Um, I I bought... A bunch of paintings, one of them being that one, from um, a friend of mine who got them from the artist from New York. Uh, and unfortunately, this artist had a little bit of a drinking problem and drank, drank himself to death. His name was Elzia Moon. Mm-hmm. And I happened to love these um, black and white charcoal paintings. And uh, they were just very meaningful. So this was one of them that was included, and it was a picture of uh, kind of a caricature of Dizzy Gillespie, um, and the person that, uh, in, in the person that actually he did a little bit of a self-portrait of himself. And uh, all of a sudden, I found myself presenting Dizzy Gillespie, and I happened to take it out of the frame, brought it to the National Art Center, went in. The dressing room to see this wonderful man showed him the picture and he said my god that is incredible i love that oh wow can you make me a copy of it and i said i will do my best he said but i would love to have your signature on it and he says absolutely which i did he he signed it for me and then i tried to get somebody to reproduce it and they said it technically it's illegal Oh. You can't take a work of art that's, a, you know, it's not a, it's not as if it's a copy, mm-hmm. it's an original, and if I did it and you reported me, um, I'm tampering with somebody else's property. So, unfortunately, not only did he pass away very shortly thereafter, uh, so I put it back in its frame, and it's now sitting in my younger daughter's home, oh. in her office. I find myself with a lot less wall space than I had. <laughs> And it's a picture that uh, any one of his pictures, because I must have bought seven or eight of them, um, I gravitate to any time um, I, I see them, and the majority of them are, are in my children's homes. That's amazing. What an amazing story. Um, now, there was a time in the 80s where, I mean, and I have the concert tickets to prove it, <laughs> where acts were coming well, first and if I, maybe if i'm mistaken you'll correct me but 
There was a time when acts weren't coming to Ottawa. And then there was a time, and like I said, I have the tickets, when, I mean, you were getting, you know, Culture Club and John Mellencamp and uh, Tina Turner, you 2 and the Kinks were a week of each other. I still have the ticket stubs. Were you, what did you do to help get those acts to Ottawa? Because Ottawa was overlooked. Well, it's not that they were overlooked. Ottawa was considered to be a B market. Okay. And, and let me explain what a B market is relative to that timing. So they went to Montreal and they had, um, they had an arena that they go to that have 17, 18,000 seats. They'd go to Toronto and they had the same thing with Maple Leaf Gardens. You come to Ottawa, you've got the auditorium or the Civic Center with 10,000 seats. The difference in potential revenue for these artists is hypothetically seven or 8,000 times whatever the ticket price is, mm-hmm. which turned it into uh, a scenario where Ottawa became what was called a filler date. They were doing the date because they still had all of their what I call basic costs. They still had to travel with the equipment where they were getting no revenue that particular day. They still had to pay staff. So if, in fact, they decided that they were in the mood to do this filler date, they might not make any money, but, of course, they wouldn't lose any money, and it wouldn't okay. be, it would be enhancing, call it the three, the three dates. Mm-hmm. So until such time as we got the larger arena in Canada, we became a B market, and we went from a B market, of course, to an A market. So it's all economics. Okay. The reason, I think, to answer your original question is the reason why a lot of these people came was because they were negotiating with either my partner Donald and or my partner Michael, and we became part and parcel of, you want to do Ottawa, you want to do Montreal and Toronto, you got to do Ottawa. Okay. And the numbers always made sense. Interesting. So again, it's all economics. And then, <clears throat> sorry, at what point did you get involved with the comedy with Yuck Yucks? That was in uh, 1982, okay. I do believe. And I could see that, I, I could see that we were doing, I was doing people like Bill Cosby and Whoopi Goldberg and on and on and on. And you know what? I could see that people loved to laugh. Mm-hmm. We were also involved a couple of years before in a club called Andy and Flows, okay. which was a comedy club. And more often than not, you're dealing with a, a small club that has 150 or 200 seats, not a lot of asses to put on seats. But we would always essentially do well. You know, you're still dealing with a small number of people, but, you know, comedy, unfortunately, at that point, and only now, even, even unless in such time, unless you're dealing with the top of the, uh, the top of the line, these comedians don't make any money. Mm -hmm. They ask for a little, they just want to work. Um, you know, 52 weeks a year so they can make themselves a, a living. And if, in fact, they at least, they, the very few of them cross over 
to get to the point where they can play theaters and or in this particular case with Russell and you know I work with Dane Cook and I and I, I worked with um, oh my god uh, George Carlin for five years uh-huh. presenting him across the country in Canada there's very few and far uh, uh, those now there seems to be more and more coming on but they're not Canadian yeah you know there's not that many Howie Mandel's etc cetera, etc cetera. so I, I want to go to the Carlin thing because I didn't know that so did you have a friendship with him? No, very no. different. No. Oh. Uh, no, when I was in Los Angeles, I decided to call his his manager, Jerry Hemsta, and and uh, meet with him. I had worked with, with Jerry Hemsta's father, who was a king in Buffalo of bringing in all the country acts into Canada and I then started working with Jerry and bringing all the country acts to Lansdowne, et cetera, et cetera. And I then called Jerry and I knew he was with Carlin and uh, um, what followed from that six months later was uh, the first tour of which I think I probably did four or five. George Carlin was a very brilliant, Mm -hmm. very brilliant, but very, very deep thinking human being. And... From a personality standpoint, um, very difficult kind of to deal with him unless you were on his level. Okay. So, so I became kind of, again, his, his promoter, producer, whatever you want to call it, in, in alignment with his, his uh, manager, uh, Jerry Hamza. It's funny because I, I took my dad to see Carlin in Ottawa. Um, I was, I was probably 16 maybe. Yep. And I was petrified because I knew the whole seven words you couldn't say on television routine, like word for word. Right. And I was scared that my father was going to think that I was some kind of deviant. (laughs) And I looked over about two or three minutes into the, into Carlin's act and my father was doubled over laughing. I think his face was red. He couldn't breathe. And I thought, okay, this is good. I can laugh. I can enjoy myself. Yeah, there's actually quite a few, um, you know, I I have to be very honest with you. I can never, I was, I, I was dealing in almost every, I call it genre. I was dealing with, um, with closed circuit boxing. I was dealing with wrestling. I was dealing with, um, of course, comedy. I was dealing with heavy metal. I was dealing with uh, regular kind of music which I loved um, of course now it's a whole new world mm-hmm. it's rap and it's hip-hop and it's it, it's just very different for me but the area that I always loved the most was comedy and I'll tell you why I wasn't dealing with drugs uh, mind you that doesn't mean that yeah um, comedy doesn't get involved in drugs but I wasn't I wasn't watching the ambulances leave the civic center with overdoses, etc. Yeah. I wasn't dealing with, um, you know, barrels full of liquor, which were being confiscated. It was kind of, comedy was kind of safe. And if you walked into a comedy show and you were a part of it, I, th- I always thought I was seeing happy people. Uh-huh. They were laughing. And I do believe it's a great medicine for the stresses that people have to deal with. True. in today's world so um 
that's a reason why about, uh, oh, I, listen, I think I had the clubs for 25, 26 years. And I went to, at that point, the so-called king of comedy, although he had only opened up one club, was Mark Breslin. And I went to Mark Breslin and I suggested to him that I wanted to open up a club and let's do it together as partners. And he said, no, I've just lost a fortune in Montreal. It didn't work. I said, well, you tried to bring English comedy into a French market. I'm not surprised. And you tried to also bring a club into the city where you did leasehold improvements, which are not what people want. You spent $50,000 on chairs and tables, etc. That's not comedy. Let me put together a, a, a scenario where you've got virtually nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate to uh, um, meet up with um, John Horwitz at the Beacon Arms Hotel, or the so-called so Broken Arms yeah. uh, <laughs> Hotel and and you couldn't have met a nicer man and we realized that to take a room that's essentially empty and fill it up and have a bar and have food uh, there's revenue factors for both parties and we worked out an extremely comfortable scenario and from the day we opened the little monies that we invested I think it might have taken us 30 days to recover. Wow. And it became, um, I would have to say, um, in a smaller terms, a license to print money. Because <laughs> whatever we were doing, we were doing right. We were. I was doing my best to treat the comedy factor, the entertainment factor, um, in what I thought to be a very respectful way. And it, we proceeded to stay there for until such time as they decided to, um, you know, renovate and create a new space. And then uh, shortly thereafter, we opened an Elgin and I sold it to my my manager who had been with me from the beginning, who was Mark Breslin's nephew. And uh, how they're doing now, I, I don't know, but I can tell you that the years involved in comedy with the club itself allowed me, aside from the fact that it was successful financially, great joy. That's great, amazing. great joy. I met, I met <clears throat> some great, great people and had some amazing experiences, some good, some bad. Um, and that's, to me, that comedy is true talent because they don't have any amplifiers to yeah. help them. They don't have any backup singers. It's all them. And, and it becomes, I'm being a little long-winded, but I give these guys such credit, and these women, sorry, such credit because they have no help. And if they bomb, or if a, a joke doesn't go right, mm -hmm. let me tell you, I've seen too many of them walk yeah off the stage and sit in the corner and cry. That's, yeah. So that, that's, to me, true talent. Well, that was the one place, Yuck Yucks, for me as a kid, like being 14 and 15, it was a place you could go to. You didn't need to be a certain age. I guess you had to be over 14. <laughs> well, only, well, no, because we had an open license. Um, you could bring your kid as long as they didn't drink. Right. It was, it, it, and in this particular case, it was a, the license of, the hotel that was dealing with it 
not mine. So I didn't, um, I didn't have to worry about it. And they really didn't worry about it because, you know, we respected the laws of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would go with friends, 14, 15 years old, and it was a great, you know, way to spend a Saturday night and not have to, your parents didn't have to worry about you. Absolutely. And Jewish parents tend to worry. You think? <laughs> well, now that I've been one for 15 years, yes. <laughs> yes. And I was like, yeah. Um, so um, what was the difference you were saying with rain, uh, rain playing a factor, weather playing a factor? You brought some pretty impressive shows to an outdoor setting at Lansdowne Park. Um, was there any one that stood out in your mind as, as one you just couldn't believe you brought? Um, you, are you suggesting shows that, for instance, I was extremely proud of? Sure, proud of, yeah. Well, oh, okay, I, I didn't know if you were talking about rain. Well, cause oh, yeah, we I brought, went on rain and then I, sorry. I, uh, yeah, well, no, no, but you were going to say rain. We brought new kids on the block and I think we had 25, 26,000 kids. The difference between making any money and losing money was the uh, the fact that it poured wow. the day of the show and that extra 3,000 tickets you know, even at $20 a piece, whatever it might be, yeah. is the difference between making and or breaking even and or even losing. But I have to tell you, um, some real highlights were um, the Eagles bringing them into um, Rito Carlton Raceway. Um, I loved working with Super Tramp. We, in, within three, two years or one year, we brought them into. Uh, we brought them to a high school. First, their first state in Canada ever. Wow. We brought them into Lansdowne Park, uh, the the act the uh, act the Civic Center sold out ten thousand seats, and at the end of the year, I think we did twenty five thousand tickets. Breakfast in Breakfast in America, um, and we sold I think thirty thousand tickets outside. Wow. And they were just like really nice uh, to work with. And so to do that in such a short period of time was amazing. We did the first uh, date with Pink Floyd on their uh, on their tour. And that was a interesting experience. Let's call it let's call it that. OK, um, because they were rehearsing in Ottawa for a week before oh. they they were going on a worldwide tour the worldwide tour. And this was again, the first state. Now we, uh, you know, some of the country shows we did outdoors like Brooks and Dunn, etc., had a, a really good run. And for most people who don't realize it, any major show like that is six months of work pre show date. Mm -hmm. So what they don't see is they know, well, we went to, we went to wherever, to get our tickets and uh, they figure it's a 24-hour event where the trucks roll in, they set up the equipment, the show goes on, the trucks roll back in, take it off, go on to the next state. It's so much more involved than that. But, you know, when you're fortunate enough to love what you do, which I always did, it was never, I never had to go to work. Unbelievable. Were I you, wanted to go. Yes, sorry. No, no, I, I sorry to interrupt. Were you ever, <clears throat> excuse me, nervous about a show or about an act? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Not, uh, you're not dealing with, um, 
you're dealing with a lot of prima donnas, mm -hmm. number one. You're dealing with a lot of uh, scenarios where, unfortunately, these people or some of the artists are either alcoholics or drug addicts. And, you know, these things have to be dealt with one way or the other. You have little or no control over it, except being careful, mm -hmm. being very careful as to who you put them in contact with, etc. And, you know, a lot of them uh, either want, need, or desire some kind of medical attention before, whether it be a, a B12 shot, uh, whatever they think is going to keep them on stage, Yeah, uh, and special diets, etc. So, yeah, there were a lot of people, I, I guess the term for me would be intimidating, Okay. Uh, I was intimidated by a lot of uh, these people because it's quite truthfully, I didn't. I, I thank God never understood, uh, and, and never saw it in my family uh, alcoholism. I never. I, it was there was little bits of drugs uh, involved. You know, maybe every once in a while uh, I'd see family members smoking, uh, smoking a little. A, a little cigarette, okay, but it was so rampant, and, yeah. and there was so much, um, I guess, there was so much of the hard drugs, you know, we'd walk into, I'd walk into a settlement room, and, you know, I was dealing with uh, people that con considered themselves accountants, but you know what, they all had their vials of cocaine um, mm. around their necks, and, and that was never anything that, I, I, I am not anybody else's judge, only my own, uh -huh. and it was kind of difficult at times to to deal with that because I was dealing with somebody that was trying to make sense but wasn't making any sense. And uh, you know what? I believe in a fair deal. Not one. I don't. I don't want ever to take advantage and or be taken advantage of. And sometimes people lose their perspective when they are under the influence. So yeah, there. And you know, every once in a while, you are dealing with. I guess you'd have to call it, um, how can I be discreet, the underworld? Sure. Because because a lot of these artists are, in their own way, they become who they become as a result of other people's money. Sometimes it's that type of money, and you have to be, uh, like, really careful. Okay. So I was really careful. I hope I haven't said anything out of turn, but... Thank God it was many, many years ago. And and we haven't said any names, so we're good. Oh, no, no, no. We're not saying any names. <laughs> was there anybody you, you brought in and you you were just amazed that they sold out or, or the crowd size they got? And on the flip side, was there anybody you brought in that you could think of that you thought was going to be a slam dunk and it took, you know, all the efforts in the world to fill the arena? Yeah, well, the former... Um, we went on sale with Boy George, sold out in a day. I didn't know who Boy George was. Okay. We sold out Meatloaf in a couple of days. Wow. Did not know. Uh, again, I I loved his music. Yeah. But I had no idea. Uh, there were, yeah, there were all kinds of acts that um, I just wished I had the memory to think of who they were. But they, they absolutely shocked me that they they didn't sell out or in some cases did very very poorly uh peter gabriel was a great artist uh brought him to one of the exhibition shows and mm -hmm. unfortunately just didn't do the numbers that i uh, 
that I would have expected, especially with his talent. But you know, it's it's a very cyclical business. You never know. Um, I've watched uh, people lose uh, their shirts, <clears throat> literally, with the Rolling Stones on certain dates. Uh, I've watched um, because as as being part and parcel of, you know, um, a, with my two promoter partners, they would do all of Canada and I would do Ottawa. And we would do shows, uh, like country shows, where we excelled in Ottawa. We Maybe it was because of, uh, again, my, my desire to make sure that I had enough of a buffer with other revenues. Like, you know, if you're bringing in a country show, sell 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 country clothing mm-hmm. um have it have it uh catered properly i, I at that point i had lone star mm-hmm. catered shows for me i had a wonderful relationship with val belcher and it's amazing i could sell only enough tickets to cover the costs of the show and and if i didn't have these you know camping and parking and food and and liquor and everything else would have lost my shirt, but across the country, the same show, lost their shirt. Wow. But th- so that was what was exciting for me, understanding um, and treating the business. It had nothing to do with who I wanted to meet, where I wanted, uh, where I wanted to do a show. It was all economics and then taking the time to enjoy and revel in the fact that it was done successfully. Interesting. That's like, honestly, I didn't expect that to be sort of the crux of the conversation that it was a numbers thing. I was, I was really not aware of that. I would often compare myself to a shoe salesman. (laughs) You know what? The only difference was I was selling tickets and the shoe salesman, except that the shoe salesman couldn't go to a party and talk about what he did because nobody wanted to hear. (laughs) Unfortunately for me, I tried not to go to parties because, you know, you, you find yourself, there's a charisma around the music business. And, mm-hmm. oh, my God, you, you worked with Frank Sinatra? Well, to me, that was nothing. But to somebody else, because anybody can sell shoes. So, But the truth of the matter is, I was just in a charismatic business. But at the end of the day... I never wanted to be perceived to be anything because I wasn't a hanger-on. Mm-hmm. I only wanted to be perceived to be a businessman. And, you know, everybody likes to count everybody else's successes. What people don't realize is in in the entertainment business, we used to have a cliche, which unfortunately became true. When you eat, you eat like a bird. But when you shit, you shit like an elephant. <laughs> So it takes an awful lot of uh, losing a lots of money on a concert that you thought you were going to do well with. It takes an awful lot of little concerts to, to cover up the little bit you made on this, this, and that. But there were always mainstays. Like, you know, country shows always did well, more often than not, Yeah. Uh, when we first started. And... Um, Again, creating these buffers made all the difference in the world. Wow. So I loved it because it allowed me to be financially creative. Um, 
and it was an exciting business. And every once in a while, and unfortunately, it would be um, somewhat minuscule in the scheme of things, but you ran across artists that were genuinely wonderful people that you could talk to and you could relate to. And, and um, you know, they weren't so totally into themselves that they, uh, you were, you, in so many cases, you became a second-class citizen. Mm -hmm. In some cases, not that you were an important cog in their wheel. You were maybe for that particular night, but they were nice people. Yeah. They were human beings like the rest of us that suffer the same pains that we do when we uh, get an upset stomach and have the same problems that the majority of us have relative to our whatever, our financial needs. And these people are very lonely people. They're on a plane. They're in a city. Yeah. They're on a stage. They don't have their family with them more often than not. They're either missing their kids or missing their wife and or... They uh, don't care about their kids, and they don't care about their wives, and uh, they just whatever they whatever they need to keep themselves happy. It's not life itself, but it's something as a catalyst to life, whether it be drugs, alcohol, uh, girls, etc. But there's some that are truly, truly interesting. I remember I loved Frankie Valley. Okay. And, and I brought him into the National Art Center uh, and other venues. And, and, you know, there was one night just before he was going on stage, he, he said to me, Harold, did you go home for dinner? I said, yes, I always go home for dinner because I was also in the running, working in the retail business. Mm -hmm. I said, I always go home for dinner, try to spend, at least have dinner with my kids. And he said, you better never forget that. He said, uh, he said to me, don't get so wound up in trying to make money and losing sight of what's really most important to you in your life and your kids will never be, and presumably my wife too, you'll never, there'll never be anything more important. And you know what? He was just being reflective of the things he lost in his own life. Sure, sure. And they, you know, and I think he lost one of his kids who was on her way, uh, or maybe she overdosed. I'm not sure, but mm -hmm. that's basically... You know what he was saying to me, and there were others along the way that, you know, basically. Uh, and and here's a good example. I was, I was, um, I was presenting Anne Marie at the uh, at the National Arts Center, and I was talking to her just before she was walked about to walk on stage, and I, she was really sick. She she was blowing her nose and sneezing, etc. And I said, Anne, um, I feel so badly. For you and you know you really shouldn't be doing this tonight and he said and she said to me you know what i'm no longer Anne Murray. i am a corporation mm. i have an office i have a manager i have a staff to pay i have a secretary to pay i don't have a choice anymore and and i guess i've always respected the businesses it is a business mm -hmm. and if in fact um and I, I, I walk away seeing, you know, so many artists who have done so well but yet are broke. Mm -hmm. And it's all because it was a game to them. There was never – there was a gentleman named Shep Gordon who managed and probably still manages Alice Cooper. And Shep said to me once, 
uh, I got to know him and, and, you know, he said, because I, you know, dealing with Alice Cooper, you're dealing with uh, a lot of liquor at one point, a lot of liquor, and uh, certainly a fair amount of drugs also. And he said, if I didn't take the, a portion of their money and buy real estate, shopping centers, etc., they'd have nothing today. Absolutely nothing. Wow. He's true. It's well, true. <clears throat> excuse me. I just, um, a week or two ago, listened to, he was actually a guest on Gilbert Gottfried's podcast, and he went into detail about his whole relationship with Alice Cooper and a number of other interesting acts. <laughs> Who, Shep Gordon? Yeah, yeah. You should yeah. listen to it if you get a chance. Yeah, he's a great guy. He's in uh, Hawaii. Yeah, he the, based on what he said, again, it was similar at the beginning to you, how he sort of like fell into this. Yes. It was just kind of by accident. Yeah. Is there anything in Ottawa, like, so now I live in Virginia and um, we're just on the border of DC and Maryland and we have a lot of different concert options around us, um, outdoor amphitheaters and smaller venues and clubs and that. Is there anything in Ottawa that you thought the city should have had that they just never did for whatever reason? Or do you think like the facilities they have are, are good for the size of the city? I think they are now. I think, um, you know, I think our problem, um, in kind of growing up in the entertainment business, uh, from the time I got involved in the, in the, uh, late sixties, early seventies was we were all kind of dealing with politics. And there was a lack of understanding when it came to politicians and requirements uh, and or thought processes. So the guy that really created um, the scenario for making people aware of and being uh, an innovator in in trying to create these things was my cousin Harvey Glatt. Mm -hmm. He's the one that uh, realized that we needed, we needed what ultimately turned out to be a Shea FM. We needed that type of radio station. So I was able to help him raise the money, which is, again, more my forte than the creativity of uh, that thing. He was um, kind of very, very instrumental in... I was instrumental in, in certain things like f f trying to do things, for instance, uh, bringing bringing the Eagles to Rideau Carlton because I said, anytime you have space and you can afford to create that space alternative to a venue, even for a one-date type situation, let's do it. And then I did it also at, um, uh, there was a raceway up uh, just past um, Stittsville. Oh. I get the name of it right now. Um, we did it. Uh, I was involved in bringing in the first show into um, uh right across from the west and i think it's a conference center at yeah. that point so we we tried to be but it was always you always had to fight the politicians first and that in itself was a battle and sometimes it was a battle even dealing with i did we did the first show at uh, uh the national arts center as independent uh, promoters even there you know you were always dealing with a different element if i saw an, if i saw a building had an opportunity and 
the building itself, whether it was federal or or municipal, had the ability to, we could put a concert on in there, then I would try to find a way to make it make it work, make it secure, and make it comfortable for the fans to see entertainment. Again, all a matter of being, it had to be viable. Mm -hmm. So if you were to wrap it all up in a book, would you, would you title it, you know, Harold Levin, I was, I'm a businessman? Oh, I, I kind of think so. Um, I would never write a book. No. Uh, but if I were, uh, I would, I would actually basically say how fortunate I was to have found, um, a venue for me to express myself uh, financially in a manner that, um, or in a business that I absolutely loved, which gave me opportunities of meeting people, icons in the entertainment world who I would have never met otherwise, uh, some being wonderful experiences, others being uh, sometimes what you think is not what you get. Yeah. If you if you if if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but you know, I look back and I, I I thank my lucky stars because I see so many people today going into work and can't and they're looking at the watch constantly to see is it time to go home. And I I I never had to do that. Well, that's the expression, right? If if you love what you do, it's not considered work, right? It was not work for me. Well, you know what? I think with that, on, on, and I, I want to end it because you've given me so much of your time today. Uh, to t and I've, I've wanted to talk to you for a long time because I did want to know what it was all about um, doing what you did. So I thank you for joining me on this. Thank you very much, Harold. My pleasure. Be well. You too. All the best. <laughs> thank you. Bye. I want to thank Harold for um, sitting down with me and dealing with all the technicality crapola at the end. We did not, I think there was maybe one or two bad words. So I'm not even going to put this one as explicit because I don't say any terrible words. And even when I talked about George Carlin and the seven words you can't say on television, which I still, I'm pretty sure I know the whole routine off by heart if I was to hear it. Um, uh, we didn't really swear. So that was nice. It's nice not to swear. <laughs> anyway, um, that's it. That's uh, this week's month, who knows, six weeks, I don't know, uh, episode of Too Lazy to Write with me, your host, the real John Baker. Uh, you can find the website, the number two, the word lazy, the number two, the word write.com. You can also... Uh, Check this out, or check me out on Twitter. Not that anyone gives a shit at the real John Baker. Um, that's about all I got for today. I'm hoping, like I said, to have a few more guests lined up in the near future to make this thing back, get this thing back on track. Uh, in the background, if you hear hammering, that's the new door almost installed. Um, so I hope you liked it. Thank you very much again to my guest Harold Levin. And uh, I look forward to getting tons of feedback on this. Have yourselves a great week. And as I keep on saying, thanks so much for listening. Take care of yourself. Bye now.